0: There's new evidence out that COVID vaccines are killing people. How much blood is on Mike Pence's hands? How much blood is on Twitter's hands? Find out on this special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the voice of the resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 297 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Thursday, December 8th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious. The last U.S. presidential election was stolen, and it's becoming more obvious all the time with the Twitter files that are coming out. Also, I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6 political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashmer.com and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Now, I attended the Important Global COVID Summit on January 8, 2022. The speakers were Dr. Richard Urso, Dr. Katerina Lindley, Dr. Heather Gessling, Dr. Kirk Milhone, Dr. Amy Beard, and Dr. Ryan Cole. Dr. Cole's been speaking a lot since then. All of them have. Right now we have about a minute of audio of Dr. Cole warning recently about the spike protein from the mRNA so-called vaccine on the nationally syndicated Dr. Drew talk show.
1: So it's in the brain tissue. Dr. Drew had a, a great question. Is it in the is it in the gray matter? Is it in the white matter? Where where in the brain? Wherever the lipid nanoparticle distributes and it does get through the blood brain barrier, and we know S one, the spike gets through as well. So it'll follow the small capillaries and leak into whatever tissue it, it wants to. Okay, next slide, please. Now, this is the aorta. This is something that's unusual. Usually, you'll see this in genetic conditions where the aorta ruptures. And you can see on the top, that's the the autopsy tissue. On the bottom, all those dots, that's inflammation. On the right, that's spike protein, literally causing the lymphocytes to chew a hole in the aorta. This is the biggest blood vessel in your body coming off your heart. When that ruptures, you're gone in minutes. So that's just another example of what deposited spike protein and the induced inflammation can do.
0: The quote there, that spike protein literally causing the lymphocytes to chew a hole in the aorta, when that ruptures, you're gone in minutes. I want to say thank you very much to uh, Citizen Free Press, citizenfreepress.com, for grabbing that one-minute video of Dr. Ryan Cole being on the um, the Dr. Drew Show. Actually, you know what? They they retweeted. They retweeted from a guy named uh, Michael Berea. Um, so I, I try to give credit where it's due, you know? Try to give credit where it's due. Because I'm doing show prep around the clock, and I'm grabbing everything I can find from a number of different sources, to get the word out to you, to present news stories to you. I don't really have time to listen to talk radio anymore, but sometimes I've got a story and I'm thinking, there's no way most talk show hosts are talking about this because they wouldn't know where to look for it in the first place. I'm not trying to brag or anything. I'm just saying that a lot of these guys are making a lot of money and that's fine. They earned it. They got there. But it's only, it only makes sense to them to um, enjoy the fruit of their labor. So they're more like normal people. They have actual lives outside of the talk show studio. I don't. I do this around the clock. So you know, no knock against them. No envy for where they are. God opens and closes doors. But there are times when I come across news items, when I come across commentaries, when I come across news stories, that I just know there's no way most guys who do talk shows are talking about these things. And it's my duty to share them with you. Okay, speaking of which, let me go over to Blog haven't shared anything from John Hinderaker and the guys at the powerlineblog.com for quite a while. Here's a new article. Do the vaccines work? And the great John Hinderaker, the guy who started the Powerline blog many, many years ago, he says, everyone knows that COVID is dangerous mostly to old people who are already sick. Man, John, I wish that were true. There are plenty of people that don't know that. I see people in their 20s, wearing masks, walking from a grocery store to their cars. No, no, no. There are plenty of people who don't know that. John, I wish that were true, man. I wish everyone knows that COVID is dangerous mostly to old people who are already sick. But anyway, he says, thus, there has been a particular emphasis on vaccinating and boosting the elderly. Well, again, there, you know, there's still colleges in the United States that won't allow students to come back unless they get vaccinated. And 18 to 22 is not elderly. But anyway, John's a good guy, and he's going to make a good point here in a second. He says, our public health establishment has now abandoned the claim that vaccination will prevent a person from catching COVID, but says that it will greatly reduce the risk of hospitalization or death. Assessing the relative risks of the vaccinated and unvaccinated requires accurate knowledge of the numbers in each category. We have records of the people who have been vaccinated. So the unvaccinated in government figures merely represents the difference between the total population cohort and the numbers known to have been vaccinated or boosted. So the size of, of the total population cohort, is obviously critical. Well, now hang on, hang on, hang on. I have read in more than one place that if you get vaccinated, just the one shot, not the second, and you die before you have a chance to get the second shot, they mark you down as unvaccinated. That death, COVID death. Because you weren't fully vaccinated. So anyway, just so you know. The government and medical establishment play games with this stuff. But I digress. John Hinderaker over the Powerline blog, do the vaccines work? He says, Kevin Roche, proprietor of Healthy Skeptic, realized that in Minnesota, the Department of Health was basing its vaxxed slash unvaxxed comparisons on different time periods. It looked, for example, at case, et cetera, rates for people who were vaccinated in 2021. But in order to determine the rates for the unvaccinated, it used population numbers averaged between 2015 and 2019. Well, the over 65 population in Minnesota grew significantly between 2015 and 2021. In a cohort where vaccination rates are high, that turns out to make a huge difference. And then he has a chart to tell the story. And one of the problems Rush Limbaugh always mentioned with the audio medium is that numbers, figures, work a lot better on a video medium, a lot better on a print medium than they do in an audio medium. So let me just go on with the article here. John Hinderaker says, Kevin Roche, over the, daily, uh, over the Healthy Skeptic, explains thusly. He says, here is what the relative event rates would look like if the 2021 one-year census population estimates were used for Minnesota instead of the five-year 2019 estimate." that the Department of Health uses. As we anticipated, the change for the 65 and over group is dramatic. In the October event data week, for example, and which should be using 2022 data, which we'll extrapolate to in a future post, the move from what is really a 2017 age 65 and over population estimate to a 2021 age 65, an overpopulation estimate, takes the number of unvaccinated persons from about 62,000 to over 162,000. It takes the cases per 100,000 people from 396 down to 151. The hospitalizations from 71 down to 27. And the deaths from about five down to less than two. The case rate is now lower than, than that for the vaccinated population and equal to that for the boosted population. The hospitalization rate is far lower than that for the vaccinated and almost equal to that of the boosted population. And the death rate again goes from 4.9 down to 1.8 equal to that for the vaccinated group and below that of the boosted population. So that's Kevin Roche over the healthy skeptic. Now, John Hinderaker, Powerline blog says, so the alleged benefit of vaccination in people over 65 turns out to be the artifact of a statistical blunder or perhaps a statistical trick. There's much more at the link, including charts that show the impact of vaccination and boosters in younger age groups Using the correct years, they indicate that in those age groups, there is a positive impact from vaccination and boosters. Although in some cases, the numbers are so low as to be of doubtful significance. Do national figures and data from other states incorporate similar errors? I don't know, but it wouldn't be surprised. He says it's easy to manipulate statistics either intentionally or accidentally by committing errors that are really rather simple but that never will be revealed by the government media. It is left to smart observers like Kevin Roche over the healthy skeptic to do the work that neither our public health establishment nor our journalists have the ability or perhaps even the desire to do. Now i got to go back to one sentence here, a couple of paragraphs earlier. He says they indicate that in those age groups, the younger age groups, there's a positive impact from vaccination and boosters, although in some cases the numbers are so low to be of doubtful significance. See, there's no way there's a positive impact from vaccination and boosters because, stick with me, the VAERS system, Vaccine Adverse Events Reaction System, is voluntary. What about all these high school and college football players that are dropping dead with heart attacks? All these healthy healthy young people getting myocarditis. So as good as the article is, we all have our blind spots, right? And that's a big one. That is a big one right there. All right. Now... We have an insurance executive, a guy named Josh Sterling, who just spoke at a congressional hearing Senator Ron Johnson was putting on. And, buddy, this is, uh, you know, I don't know whether to play you the audio or just read you what he said which is over at Vigilant Fox on Substack. Some people do better with the audio uh, from the witness, and some people do better with me reading it. Let me do both, okay? Let, let, let's let's just do both. That's what we'll do. It's just a couple of minutes long, but again, very concerning, very scary stuff. This is insurance executive Josh Sterling as Senator Ron Johnson's subcommittee meeting talking about the vaccine deaths. And it went something like this. The senator asked us asked to show just the one chart that tells the entire story. This is that chart.
1: Um, the U.K. government until this summer was reporting a data series that showed the relative mortality rates for the vaccinated and unvaccinated by the number of doses of the vaccine. We've done what we think is really professional work with this, and we think it simplifies down to a conclusion that says that through the last available data set, the people in the UK who took the vaccine have a 26% higher mortality rate. The people who are under the age of 50 who took the vaccine now have a 49% higher mortality rate. And worst of all, Um, The people who only took one dose of the vaccine have approximately 145% dose uh, worse mortality rate. That last data point is, on its face, confusing, especially because it seems like there's more and more, you know, it just doesn't make a ton of sense, unless you realize... That what's going on with this really is that the people who took the dose, the first dose, in the United States that's about 12% of people, but then stopped taking any other doses. Those people, through their choice to stop, disproportionately the ones who were harmed. And so what we're concluding is that if you happen to be an unlucky person who was in some fashion, even moderately injured, mindfully with a minor injury, and decided not to continue, the statistics, the best statistics we have, show that you're going to have, at least through today, maybe it will get better, you know, and obviously we're all here because we're hoping to find treatments and cures and screening and interventions. You know, but if that doesn't happen, we have to assume that this is now the baseline, there's going to be 145% higher mortality. And if you were to take these numbers and just apply them to the United States, that ends up being something like 600,000 excess deaths per year in the United States from this higher vaccine-induced mortality. And, you know, that's that's obviously a really concerning thing, and we're I'm, I'm happy you called the meeting, and I, I'm, I know we all hoping to get to answers. Thank you. And, again, I thought that statistic on a
0: single dose was pretty interesting because, let's face it, every, just about everybody knows somebody who took uh, you know the first dose and had a severe reaction, they're not going to take the second one, so... Okay, that's uh, Senator Ron Johnson right at the end responding to Josh Sterling. Highly recognized insurance research analyst. Now, there seemed to be a lot of echo on that. I don't, uh, Maybe it didn't sound like that to you, but just in case, just in case, let me share with you quickly uh, what Josh Sterling, this insurance research analyst, said. And again, big shout-out to Vigilant Fox over at Substack for doing the article on this COVID-19 vaccines, what they are, how they work and possible causes of injuries. That's the title on the agenda for Wednesday, December 7th, 2022 as Senator Ron Johnson held a round table discussion of doctors, medical experts, and researchers in an effort to shed light on the current state of knowledge regarding the COVID-19 shot. Now, An enlightening speaker Wednesday was Josh Sterling, a highly recognized insurance research analyst. And what he brought forth was the one chart that tells the entire story. And they have the uh, the chart embedded at the article here on the, uh, the Vigilant Fox page at Substack. Article entitled, UK Government Data Shows that they're vaccinated, now suffer higher mortality. Are you getting this? I sure hope so. So Josh Sterling says the UK government until this summer was reporting a data series that showed the relative mortality rates for the vaccinated and unvaccinated by the number of doses of the vaccine. We've done what we think is really professional work with this, And they think it simplifies down to a conclusion that says that through the last available data set, the people in the UK who took the vaccine have a 26% higher mortality rate. The people who are under the age of 50 who took the vaccine now have a 49% higher mortality rate. And worst of all, the people who only took one dose of the vaccine have approximately a 145% worse mortality rate. Rate Now, that last data point is on its face confusing. It just doesn't make a ton of sense until you realize that what's going on with this really is that the people who took the first dose in the United States, that's about 12% of American citizens, would then stop taking any other doses. Those people, through their choice to stop, disproportionately were the ones who are harmed, okay? Let that sink in. Josh Sterling continues. And so what we're concluding is that if you happen to be an unlucky person who was in some fashion even moderately injured or with a minor injury and have decided not to continue, the statistics, the best statistics we have show you're going to have, at least through today, maybe it'll get better, But if that doesn't happen, we'd have to assume that this is now the baseline. There's going to be 145% higher mortality of people who got one and only one jab. And if you were to take these numbers from the U.K. and just apply them to the U.S.A., that ends up being something like 600,000 excess deaths per year, in the United States from this higher vaccine-induced mortality. Now, whoever it is that does the Vigilant Fox over on Substack says, those are truly horrifying numbers, but thank you, Josh Sterling, for your testimony and expertise. If you'd like to tune in to the rest of this eye-opening roundtable discussion, you can watch the entire video by clicking the link below. Again, at vigilantfox.substack.com. So, how much blood is on Mike Pence's hands? How much blood is on Twitter's hands? We're going to talk about that. Again, this is not a normal talk show. I am not here to soft-pedal things. You're not going to confuse me with some show that brings on some rhino and says, oh, you're a great conservative. No. No. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Hey, look, let me tell you something. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online. They'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you, To complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still still here to help you every step of the way. If you have any questions, Red River makes so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says explore payment options. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental United States of America. RedRiverYourWay.com. You will be glad you did. Now, I've been talking for quite some time now about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became better off while mom-and-pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? What can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Switch to America.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. We now have over 30 different patriot influencers on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country, we're done with a woke, globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made in America. The website is SwitchToAmerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to to SwitchToAmerica.com when it asks how you heard about us. Of course, click on my name, Doc Washburn. That's SwitchToAmerica.com. All right, now, we're going to talk about, we're going to ask the question, about all these vaccine deaths. Okay, well how much blood is on Mike Pence's hands? How much blood is on Twitter's hands for that matter? Do you know Mike Pence has a uh, has an autobiography out now? Oh yeah. The great Jeffrey A Tucker has an article about it. He's the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. An economist, an author. He's written 10 books, including Liberty or Lockdown. Writes a daily column on economics over the epictimes.com. But he's got an article here on his own site, brownstone.org, entitled The World According to Mike Pence. He says, I'm mostly interested. In Mike Pence's book, So Help Me God, for what he says about the experience of COVID controls, for this is what wrecked the administration he served. That will be my focus. And what follows, but let me first address what everyone is right now thinking. How could anyone give their autobiography such a self-serving, pietistic title as So Help Me God? Okay, I had to look it up. I'll admit filiopietistic of or relating to an often immoderate reverence for forebears or tradition. Let's see how he backs this up. He says, I don't have the answer, but he certainly leans in. He must have hired an editor to sprinkle the text as much as possible with Bible verses and other invocations of his deep connection to transcendent concerns all of which serves as a helpful cover for what he actually did. Are you with me? Jeffrey Tucker says, and what did he do? Well, from Deborah Birx's book to Jared Kushner's book to, for that matter, the Washington Post book and every other book, of the insider accounts we have so far. Mike Pence provided cover for Anthony Fauci, Deborah Burks, and former CDC director Robert Redfield in their drive to convince Donald Trump of lockdown orders and then protected the lockdown crew in their national drive to push controls long after Trump had lost the faith. Later, Mike Pence stuck the knife in deeper and then bailed. Now, we know that this is true from Mike Pence's own account in his new book. To be sure, his main theme is that the Trump administration, thanks to him and his spiritual maturity, did most everything correctly in the year 2020. Then the Biden administration showed up and messed everything up using a so-called top-down and public sector approach that the Trump administration rejected. Now this is a brazenly partisan take at multiple levels. Okay, can I just can I just digress here for a second? I don't want you to get the wrong impression. This guy is not here to defend Biden. <laughs> no. No. I mean That's what he's not that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that Mike Pence is looking back through rose-colored glasses at what He did and what he talked Trump into putting up with starting in March of 2020 and going all the way to January 2021. Mike Pence summarizes this way. He says, We reinvented testing from a standing start, produced and distributed billions of pieces of personal protective equipment and manufactured tens of thousands of ventilators. In nine short months, we developed three safe and effective vaccines. Well, we all know that's not true. When we left office in January 2021, we were vaccinating a million Americans a day. Together, we saved millions of lives in the greatest national mobilization since World War II. It took all of us, the whole of government, the whole of America, but we did it. Only in America. Okay. Okay. Jeffrey Tucker says, there's no evidence, obviously, of this claim that we save millions of lives, but I've come to expect this sort of language. Save millions of lives has become a rhetorical stand-in for, please do not criticize my appalling failure. And by the way, the line only in America is deployed constantly throughout the book, but this too is ridiculous. The lockdowns and the deployment of other NPIs were global in scope. He surely knows this. So the phrase, only in America, is just more self-serving jingoism, which he must assume plays to his potential voting base. See, that's the amazing thing. The idea that Mike Pence thinks he has a potential voting base. Oh, my goodness. But I digress. Mike Pence claims, of course, that the decision to block China was his idea, And Trump just, you know, went along with it. Here's what he says. If this virus, COVID-19, was pouring out of China, we had to try to cut off its ability to reach us. I sensed, though how unprecedented and likely subject to wide-ranging criticism doing that would be, as the conversation in the Oval Office reached its conclusion for the President's benefit, I asked members of the task force, has any president in American history ever suspended all travel from another country? The answer was no. Trump sat back in his chair, pondered all that he had heard, and made a decision. The United States would temporarily suspend all travel from China. Okay, um... As I recall, it was all commercial air travel. You know? Pretty sure that to Amazon and Nike and stuff like that still went in and out. But anyway. Jeffrey Tucker at brownstone.org responds, Goodness, how could he have been so smart and far-seeing? Here's another quote from Mike Pence's autobiography. He says, What gave me confidence was that I had been a governor and had gone through two different health crises. One including the first MERS case in the United States, and the other an HIV-AIDS epidemic in a small Indiana town. I had seen firsthand how the state and federal governments could work together during a health crisis. I understood and readily accepted the challenge. Jeffrey Tucker comments, Oh, and also God and country was at his side. Another quote from Mike Pence. I stood up, walked out of the Oval Office, headed down the hallway, and pulled the team together in my West Wing office for my first meeting as head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Not knowing what lay ahead, we bowed our heads and opened that first meeting in prayer. From that moment, a seriousness settled on me that was nothing short of God's grace. I didn't know what was ahead. But I knew America would rise to the occasion. To which Chris Tucker says, Also, Pence rescued Americans from a cruise ship. I kid you not. This is what he believes. Can you even imagine? Here you are on a delightful cruise. And a flu starts going around. Too bad, but hey, people get sick. Stay on the upper deck and get some sun. Then the helicopters arrive to so-called rescue you when you're merely trying to enjoy a vacation. Here is Mike Pence's account of his own heroics. He says, as other nations shut down travel in February, almost 95,000 Americans were left stranded abroad. The task force launched a rescue mission to bring them home safely. A number of Americans who were unable to get back home were on cruise ships. The task force launched a complicated mission to evacuate the passengers, many of them elderly and vulnerable. We coordinated with Air Force bases in California, Texas, and Nebraska to receive the passengers who had to be safely transported off the ship and into quarantine on the bases. To which Chris Tucker says, you know, that sounds kind of like Kidnapping or hostage-taking or something? I doubt seriously that the passengers appreciated being rescued in such a way only to be forcibly quarantined? All of this speaks to something extremely strange about these days, the conflation of an infectious disease outbreak with a military operation requiring martial law and extreme invasions of liberty and property. As Debbie Lerman has proven, this is exactly what happened. Oh, my. And he links to Debbie Lerman's article at brownstone.org. And I might have to share it with you because it's, it's, it's getting real up in here. She has an article over at brownstone.org entitled, Government's National Security Arm Took Charge During the COVID Response. She says, in previous articles, I discussed the probability that Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator, was not a representative of the public health agencies but rather was appointed by the National Security Council. I now have proof that this was indeed the case. I have also uncovered documents that show, as of March 13, 2020, the National Security Council was officially in charge of the U.S. government's COVID policy. Also, starting on March eighteenth, 2020, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, under the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, was officially in charge of the U.S. government's COVID response. The COVID task force coordinator was brought in by the National Security Council. Did you know that? I didn't think so. She says on March 11, 2020, at a Heritage Foundation talk, Trump's National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, when discussing what the White House and National Security Council were doing about the virus, said... We brought into the White House Debbie Burks, a fantastic physician and ambassador from the State Department. We appreciate Secretary Pompeo immediately moving her over to the White House at our, well, at the President's request. Again, the National Security Council was in charge of our COVID policy. An astonishing government document dated March 13, 2020, entitled PANCAP, Adapted U.S. Government COVID 19 Response Plan which is embedded at the end of this article, reveals that the U.S. policy in response to SARS-CoV-2 was set not by the public health agencies designated in pandemic preparedness protocols, but rather by the National Security Council. This is the Pandemic Response Organization chart from page 9 of this document showing the NSC solely responsible for COVID policy. And she's got the chart. Now, what is the National Security Council? According to its website, the NSC is the president's principal forum for considering national security and foreign policy matters with his or her senior advisors and cabinet officials. Now, the NSC does not include, as regular attendees, any representatives from public health-related agencies. It does include the president's national security advisor, who is the president's most important source of policy advice, on foreign and national security policy, according to the White House Transition Project's document for the National Security Advisor and Staff. The document continues, in some administrations, foreign and national security policymaking is essentially centralized in the hands of the NSC advisor with minimal input from cabinet-level departments, such as state or defense. Furthermore, there is little statutory or legal constraint beyond budgetary limits, and how the role of the National Security Advisor is defined, or how the National Security staff is organized and operates. In other words, if the NSC is in charge of COVID response, it can pretty much decide and impose anything it wants without any constraints or oversight, as long as the president agrees or at least lets them take the lead. But what exactly is this document in which the NSC appears in such a surprising COVID response leadership role. This pan a which stands for Pandemic Crisis Action Plan Adapted, is the closest thing we have to a national COVID response plan. An exhaustive online search did not turn up the Pandemic Crisis Action Plan from 2018, which was apparently adapted to produce PANCAP-A. However, the existence of the original document is confirmed in various documents, including a statement on preparedness for COVID-19 presented to the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs April 14, 2021. In this statement, Elizabeth Zimmerman, former FEMA administrator, who's sharing with the Senate Committee her findings on the initial pandemic response and lessons learned, says she had trouble finding the government's plan for the U.S. response to COVID-19. That's scary. She says, In researching disaster response plans, to refresh my memory for this hearing, I found several detailed plans that were publicly available and saw mention of plans and directives that were not publicly available. The time spent searching for these plans and directives was frustrating for an experienced emergency manager. Then, in reference to the plans she was able to find or knew about but may not have actually seen, she says, Following the anthrax attacks in 2001, the federal government invested a lot of money on processes and plans centered on public health response, bioterrorism, and pandemics in particular. One of the latest plans, January 2017, is the Biological Incident Annex to the response and recovery federal interagency operational plans this biological incident annex bia is the federal organizing framework for responding and recovering from a range of biological threats including pandemics however it was not publicly seen that these plans were being used during the onset of covid-19 nor does it seem that there was a national covid-19 response plan Wait a minute. She's like, she was not able to find a national COVID-19 response plan? So Burks and Fauci and Redfield were just winging it? You're not shocked, are you? Finally, she references the 2018 PANCAP, the adapted PANCAP paper, and then makes another surprising statement when she says, also there was a 2018 pandemic crisis action plan that was customized for COVID-19 specifically and adopted In March 2020, by HHS and FEMA, the plan identified the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as the lead federal agency with FEMA supporting for coordination. However, a mere five days after the national COVID-19 emergency was announced, FEMA became the lead federal agency over Health and Human Services. So, Again, FEMA replaced HHS as the lead federal agency with no warning, no preparation. What Zimmerman is saying here is that in the PAN-CAP-A organizational chart, where the National Security Council is in charge of policy and HHS is in charge of almost everything else, actually FEMA is in charge of everything else. This means that, in effect, starting March eighteenth, 2020, Health and Human Services, which comprises the CDC... Then the NIAID, that's Fauci's agency, NIH, and other public health related agencies had no official leadership role in pandemic response. Not in determining policy and not in an implementing policy. Okay, so that means uh, Fauci and Burks and, and Admiral Girouard, however you say his name, and, and Redfield, CDC, going up and doing these press conferences every day, doing these announcements, they were deciding anything. She said, this is a staggering piece of information, considering that all pandemic preparedness plans, as Zimmerman notes, placed the Health and Human Services Agency at the helm of pandemic response. Okay, so how was FEMA put in charge? Well, according to the Stafford Act, which constitutes a statutory authority for most federal disaster response activities, especially as they pertain to FEMA and FEMA programs, The disasters to which FEMA is empowered to respond include, quoting now, any national catastrophe, including any hurricane, tornado, storm, high water, wind-driven water, tidal wave, tsunami, earthquake, volcanic eruption, landslide, mudslide, snowstorm, or drought, or, regardless of cause, any fire, flood, or explosion, and any part of the United States which, in the determination of the President, causes damage of sufficient severity and magnitude to warrant major disaster assistance under this Act to supplement the efforts and available resources of states, local governments, and disaster relief organizations in alleviating the damage, loss, hardship, or suffering caused thereby. So very clearly, FEMA is an agency neither designed nor intended to lead public health initiatives or the country's response to disease outbreaks. Yet, as Zimmerman reported on March 18, 2020, just five days after the official date of PANCAP-A, the Department of Health and Human Services was removed from its lead role in pandemic response, and FEMA was, at least operationally, if not policy-wise, put in charge. Now, in a Congressional Research Service report from February 2022 entitled, FEMA's role in the COVID-19 federal pandemic response, the opening paragraph says this. On March 13, 2020, President Donald J. Trump declared a nationwide emergency under the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act, authorizing assistance administered by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, Five days later, the president notified then-FEMA Administrator Pete Gaynor that the agency would assume leadership of the federal pandemic response effort, the first known instance of FEMA serving in such a role for a public health incident. Okay? Now, FEMA's January 2021 COVID-19 initial assessment report emphasizes how unusual this chain of events was. Here's what they said. The agency's response to COVID-19 has been unprecedented. When the White House directed FEMA to lead operations, COVID-19 became the first national pandemic response that FEMA has led since the agency was established in 1979. It was also the first time in US history the president has declared a nationwide emergency under section 501B of the Stafford Act and authorized major disaster declarations for all states and territories for the same incident. Now, a FEMA fact sheet from March 4, 2020, reveals the agency was not given advance warning of the enormous new responsibilities that will be thrust upon it just two weeks later. They said, at this time, FEMA is not preparing an emergency declaration in addition to the public health emergency declared by HHS January thirty first, 2020. Now, at this point, the author says the table below is from a September 2021 report from the Office of Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security called Lessons Learned from FEMA's Initial Response to COVID-19. This document stresses that the PANCAP-A did not address the changes that ensued when FEMA was designated the lead federal agency. Furthermore, FEMA and HHS did not update the PAN-CAP-A, or issue interim guidance addressing the changes in critical roles and responsibilities for each agency. Oh, my goodness. In other words, HHS, the agency designated by statute and experience to handle public health crises, was removed. And FEMA, the agency designated by statute and experience to help people before, during, and after disasters like earthquakes and fires, was put in charge. But the pandemic planning document was not updated to reflect that change or how that change would affect the COVID response. Why was FEMA suddenly and unexpectedly given this lead role? I would argue that the National Security Council wanted to ensure that no policy or response initiative emanating from the public health departments would play any role in the COVID response. Since FEMA had no planning documents or policies, Regarding disease or pandemic outbreaks, there will be nothing in the way of whatever the National Security Council wanted to do. So what did they want to do? Well, PANCAP-A, in which the National Security Council takes a lead role in setting COVID policy, does not give a detailed answer, but does clearly place National Security Council policy above anything else that might contradict it. All right, so what does Pancap A say? I'll tell you in just a moment. In the meantime, I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American health care. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? What about problems with your blood sugar? What about problems with psoriasis, migraines even? How about dizziness, vertigo? the Arkansas Cervical Center might be able to help you no matter where you live in the United States. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate to the rest of your body as it's designed to do. Now, I had severe hay fever five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and never came back. The migraines went away, and they never came back. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, psoriasis, blood sugar problems, migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009 for free consultation. They have helped me, my wife, and so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation, 501 If you're outside central Arkansas but you need the same kind of help, just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the tab that says Find a Doctor Near You, and I sure hope you can. All right, I want to tell you the good news about America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, Patriot Mobile. You want to save money? That got your attention, didn't it? Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes as well as multi-line users. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. And you're saving money, too. I sure am. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for first amendment religious freedom freedom of speech second amendment right to bear arms sanctity of life and the needs of our veterans and first responders switching is easy just go to patriotmobile.com or call their US-based customer service team at 972 patriot make sure you use promo code doc that's d o c for free activation patriot mobile america's only christian conservative wireless provider now also offers competitive business plans to suit companies of any size. If you're a conservative-owned business, tired of seeing your hard-earned dollars go to corporate woke agendas, switch to Patriot Mobile Business Now. Find out all you want to know at business.patriotmobile.com or just call their 100% U.S.-based member services team at 469-FREEDOM. Use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. That's business.patriotmobile.com, or just call 469-FREEDOM for Patriot Mobile. All right, now, let's go back. We were looking at Chris Tucker's article entitled, The World According to Mike Pence, and he made a very important point about how the feds took over, talking about the federal government deciding that they had to uh, take people off cruise ships who maybe didn't even want to come off the cruise ships. Remember? He said it sounds kind of like kidnapping or hostage-taking. I doubt seriously the passengers appreciated being, quote, rescued, unquote, in such a way only to be forcibly quarantined. All this speaks to something extremely strange about These days, the conflation of an infectious disease outbreak with a military operation requiring martial law and extreme invasions of liberty and property. And then he links to Debbie Lerman's article, the brownstone.org says that's exactly what happened. So that's what we're looking at. Debbie Lerman's article entitled government's national security arm took charge during the COVID response. And so we're at the point in the article where she says, what does Pancap A say? On page one, under purpose, it states, this plan outlines the U.S. government coordinated federal response activities for COVID-19 in the U.S., the president appointed the vice president to lead U.S. government effort with the Department of Health and Human Services serving as the lead federal agency consistent with the Pandemic and All-Hazards Preparedness Act and Presidential Policy Directive 44. In other words, in accordance with a bunch of pandemic preparedness laws and directives, HHS is the lead federal agency in charge of pandemic response. As we move through the document, however, the roles and responsibilities of the HHS become increasingly muddled and diminished. On page 6, under senior leader intent, it says, the National Security Council requested adaptation of the PANCAP to address the ongoing threat caused by COVID-19 in support of the administration's efforts to monitor, contain, and mitigate the spread of the virus. The plan builds on objectives that prepare the U.S. government to implement broader community and health care-based mitigation measures. In other words, everything the PANCAP-A says about how the HHS is planning to address the pan- pandemic is adapted in favor of objectives that prepare the government to implement broader measures. On the next page. We get the exact same vague language under strategic objectives, which include implementing broader community and health care based mitigation measures. A footnote tells us these objectives were directed by the National Security Council Resilience DRG PCC. February 24th, 2020. Now, what is the National Security Council Resilience DRG PCC? There is no explanation appendix or addendum, nor anything else in the entire PANCAP A to answer this question. A noteworthy omission, since it apparently defines the objectives upon which the entire U.S. pandemic response is based. This is kind of bothering me. Is it bothering you? Similarly, on page 8, under concept of operations, we read, this concept of operations aligns, Interagency triggers to the CDC intervals for each phase and groups key federal actions according to response phase. It also layers in the COVID-19 containment and mitigation strategy developed by the National Security Council. Guess what? There is no explanation or description of what the containment and mitigation strategy developed by the National Security Council is referring to. So, in conclusion, everything we thought we knew about the U.S. government's COVID response is upended, and the Pandemic Crisis Action Plan adapted, or PANCAP-A, which gave the National Security Council sole authority over policy, and the simultaneous Stafford Act declaration, which resulted in FEMA and DHS taking the lead role in its implementation, this means the doctors in the White House task force who headed HHS departments, including Fauci, Redfield, Collins, the heads of the CDC, NIAID, and NIH, had no authority over determining or implementing COVID policy and were following the lead of the NSC and the DHS which is the department under which FEMA operates. It means our response to the COVID pandemic was led by groups and agencies that are in the business of responding to wars and terrorist threats, not public health crises or disease outbreaks. I believe the national security authorities took control of the COVID pandemic response, not just in the U.S., but in many of our allied countries, the U.K., Australia, Germany, Israel, and others, because they knew SARS-CoV-2 was an engineered virus that leaked from a lab researching potential bioweapons, whether or not the novel coronavirus was in fact a highly lethal pathogen. It was a military threat because it was a potential bioweapon and therefore it required a military style response, strict lockdowns and anticipation of operation warp speed vaccine development. Furthermore, All of the seemingly nonsensical and unscientific policies, including mask mandates, mass testing, quarantines, using case counts to determine severity, were imposed in the service of the singular goal, stick with me, of fomenting fear in order to induce public acquiescence with a lockdown until vaccines policy. And once the national security authorities were in charge... The entire biodefense industrial complex consisting of national security and intelligence operatives, propaganda, psyop, psychological operations, departments, pharmaceutical companies, and affiliated government officials and non-governmental organizations assumed leadership roles. Much research is needed to unearth more evidence in support of these hypotheses. The work continues. Man, oh man. As Debbie Lerman over the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org, article from November 3rd of this year entitled, Government's National Security Arm Took Charge During the COVID Response. Oh my goodness. So we go back to our initial. Article Jeffrey Tucker at Brownstone.org. He says, sorry to say, but Pence, knowingly or not, was at the center of it. As even he says, it was important then to have not just public health and national security officials involved in the decision-making. Pence further takes credit for solving the testing debacle. Deborah Birx was running around freaking out that we needed millions and billions of tests else everyone would die. Mike Pence stepped up with his astonishing leadership skills. Here's what he says. 30 minutes later, the CEOs of America's biggest testing companies were all on the line, including LabCorp and Quest Diagnostics. We explained the testing crisis and made it clear that we wanted the industry to work together. I told them that the pharmaceutical companies would have to create a consortium to work together to develop medicines and vaccines, and I wanted the diagnostic companies to do the same. They were eager to help and said they would discuss it in a meeting of the industry to take place the next day. I asked them, can you all be at the White House later this week? They all said yes, they would be there. I hung up. Deborah Burks was in disbelief. She asked, how did you do that? I answered, welcome to the White House. Jeffrey Tucker Brownson.org brownstone.org says, wow, such drama. What happened next? Again, from Pence's book. I told them, make as many tests as quick as you can, and the federal government will buy them from you. Make a billion a month if you can. And with that, we launched an effort to redesign testing. Jeffrey Tucker says, yes, you can roll your eyes. Also, Pence is the reason we had so many masks. He was campaigning around the country when God spoke to him. Oh, boy. Here's the quote from Pence's book. As I was thinking about the nation's supply of personal protective equipment, I realized that Minnesota was home to 3M which happens to be the nation's largest producer of masks. It was God's timing. I asked Burks and Stephen Hahn, director of the FDA, to come along. We got on board Air Force Two and landed in Minnesota on our way to Seattle. Jeff Tucker says, what a man. Then what happened? Again, from Pence's autobiography, he says, I knew CEO Roman Walls from Congress. He had been in the house, We had been in the House together. And our governorships had overlapped. I asked him how 3M could increase its production of masks. Roman explained the company produced 35 million masks a month, but only 10% were for hospital use. All the rest were for construction workers. I asked him, but are they essentially the same mask? The answer was yes. I said, great, then can we just purchase those for hospital use? No, I was told. The masks had not been approved for medical use by the FDA. The company could be sued if they were used in hospitals. I asked, what's the answer here? Roman explained that if 3M could be afforded legal protection by Congress, we could sell them across the country. So after the meeting ended, I grabbed Walls by the elbow. I told him we would have to call Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Congress was quickly putting together a COVID emergency bill and tell them we needed the Democrat leaders to put language into a bill that would provide temporary protection for companies such as 3M to sell their masks for medical use, which he did. With that reform alone, we went from having 3 million N95 masks available to 20 million when Trump signed the bill a week later. To this Jeffrey Tucker... At brownstone.org says, a better savior for the country one cannot imagine. And yet he was more than just an incredibly competent testing and mask master. He was also a spiritual counselor to the president's son-in-law. Again from Pence's book. Shortly after I took over the task force, Jared Kushner approached me. He told me he was dropping everything he was working on to help me in whatever way I needed. Two weeks in, on the evening of Sunday, March 15th, he called me. When I heard his voice on the other end, I could tell he was discouraged about the challenges we were facing in ramping up testing, getting enough medical supplies distributed, and coordinating that effort at the ground level. He confessed, we can't do this from the White House. It's too much. We'll never be able to meet the needs. I asked him, you want me to make you feel better? Not even waiting for his answer. I said, we don't have to. The framers of the Constitution gave us a system of 50 CEOs leading states across the country. We just need to make sure they have what they need, and they will get it done. To that, he sighed in relief, saying, I hadn't thought of it that way, adding, you know what? You're right. Jeff Tucker, brownstone.org, responds, is there no problem this man cannot solve? That answer is obviously no, if we are to believe his autobiographical account. He further proves this on the subject of ventilators, which he knew from his extensive experience in hospital therapeutics that we desperately needed. Hope you caught the sarcasm there. From Pence's book, when it came to the matter of the nation's ventilator supply, We faced another shortage with dire consequences. In severe cases of COVID, the patient's lungs became so inflamed that they can no longer deliver oxygen to the bloodstream. Ventilators provided a lifeline to the lungs while patients fought off the virus. The strategic national stockpile hadn't been refilled since the H1N1 influenza outbreak in 2009. At the outset of the year, we had 10,000 ventilators on hand. It wasn't nearly enough. In the first few weeks, we had requests for 55,000 ventilators from the states. If there was anything that kept me up at night, it was the idea that any American who needed a ventilator could be denied a ventilator. Chris Tucker says, All you widows out there whose husbands were vented to death in those days, we might be talking many thousands are surely comforted to know that Mike Pence lost sleep worrying that there weren't enough ventilators. And you can predict the ending of the ventilator vignette. Pence got the ventilators we supposedly needed, but actually did not. As for his relationship with Tony Fauci, it was tight. He has no words of criticism for Fauci at all. Again, from Pence's book. And I was glad Fauci was there. He was a reassuring voice to the public. Mitch McConnell had advised me correctly that Fauci would be a valuable member of the team because of his stature. He and Dr. Burks had known each other for years. They had almost a mentor and mentee relationship. Fauci played an invaluable role in helping the president and our team understand the true scope of the threat. I always worked well with Tony, as he was keen to stay in his own important lane. He offered his expertise and advice, but in all our dealings, he always recognized that there were, that there were economic and social factors to consider in the president's decisions. I never thought his role was to lead the government's response to the pandemic or be its point person, and neither did he. Chris Tucker continues, that takes us to the lockdowns. Here is Mike Pence's justification when he says, By the second week of March 2020, with cases on the rise in several major cities and the threat of an outbreak that could overwhelm our health care system, the task force took a plan to the president developed by Fauci and Burks to shut down much of the U.S. economy for two weeks. We called it 15 days to slow the spread. It was a mitigation tactic driven by the knowledge that the virus was extremely contagious. The president urged citizens who could stay home to do so and to avoid interacting with others and temporarily shut down huge parts of the economy. Other than businesses and workers deemed essential. Well, like Walmart. Ramping up testing, bolstering the nation's supplies of medical equipment and getting it all to the states was an effort to save our medical system from collapsing under the weight of the virus. The goal of the so-called lockdown was never to stop the spread of the virus. It was to slow it, to buy time for the U.S. healthcare system while its innovators got to work producing supplies and developing a medical arsenal. Chris Tucker continues, he says, Incredible, because none of this is true. You get that? None of this is true. The medical system was never collapsing. Hundreds of hospitals furloughed nurses because the hospitals emptied out. This is because the Trump administration issued nationwide orders to reserve hospitals for COVID patients while blocking all diagnostics and elective surgeries. But, of course, we don't hear a word of this from Mike Pence's book, do we? No, we don't. How does he justify having a central government, under an effective dictatorship, issuing a nationwide edict that closes all places where people congregate? It was an incredible and totalitarian dictate. Mike Pence simply says the following, and I quote, I believe in limited government. I am not anti-government. Oh, and here, so far as he was concerned, government was merely doing what it was supposed to do. Of course, it was never going to end in two weeks. Mike Pence tells the story. Here's what he says. They informed us that if we failed to keep the mitigation in place for another 30 days... Up to 2.2 million people, up to 2.2 million Americans could die before the year was out. The graph presented two waves. The worst-case scenario in dark blue, the if-we-do-everything-right outcome in light blue. The former looked like a mountain. The latter was significantly smaller, but still heartbreaking in size. The president digested it all for a quiet moment. It was another hard decision, but he made it. On March 31st, we presented the chart to the American people, and extended the 15 days to slow the spread protocol for another 30 days. Chris Tucker says, the pathology, or stupidity here, is simply astonishing. They looked at some bogus modeling chart with colors and decided to abolish the Bill of Rights for longer? Yep, that happened, and yep, Mike Pence blessed it. So far as I can tell, Mike Pence is not mortified, but proud of his decision that ended up tanking the entire Trump presidency. He says, I know we saved millions of lives. Now, I know you're tired of this review already, but I must share with you another virtue of Mike Pence. He is also a blessed peacemaker. Here's what he said. In a weekend series of tweets, President Trump called Michigan Governor Gretchen half-Whitmer and said she was way over her head. At a Monday press conference, Trump said he told me not to call the woman in Michigan. I called her anyway. When I did, she said we had done a great job, but she was going to keep pushing for more. I respectfully asked her to talk to me if she needed anything rather than take it to cable television. The next day, President Trump said he had had a productive conversation with Whitmer. Blessed are the peacemakers. I guess Mike Pence is saying, God bless me. Amazing. By the way, I wonder if he mentions the fact that uh, Governor Whitmer made it against the law to go down to Lowe's, Home Depot, or Walmart to buy seeds to plant a garden with. She did, you know. She did. Chris Tucker continues, What about when the lockdowns were ending but sustained in many places? We know from the records that this was due to nationwide tours by Deborah Burks, Robert Redfield, and Tony Fauci, who would show up in governor's offices to urge them to keep schools closed, force everyone to wear masks, and otherwise ban large gatherings. By this time, Trump was fed up with that whole kabuki dance. But his team had already gone rogue and tried to keep lockdowns going until November. Let me see, November, November, November 2020. What happened in November 2020? He says, how in the world did they get away with this? Guess what? It was Mike Pence, and he admits it. Here's what he says in his book. When our press briefings waned, I encouraged Burks and Redfield to visit the states and meet with governors and health officials. I believed that our role was to give our best counsel, but respect the state leaders, which we did without fail. Chris Tucker says, I don't even need to report that he is enormously proud of the vaccines, too, even go so far as to report, without any irony, that, quote, they were both nearly 95% effective against contracting COVID, unquote. Well, that's impossible because one of the executives of Pfizer told the uh, European Union Parliament a couple of months ago they didn't even test them, didn't even test their vaccine before they rolled it out to see if it worked against the spread of COVID. Here, once again, is Mike Pence. To have two safe and effective vaccines available to the American people within nine months of the start of a pandemic was a medical miracle. While those research companies are to be commended, so too are the leaders of Operation Warp Speed, Monsef Slaoui and HHS Assistant Secretary Paul Mango, who shepherded the vaccines through through the process in record time, and General Gus Perna, who worked with states and American companies such as FedEx to distribute the vaccine across the country before the year was out. The day we left office in 2021, we were vaccinating a million Americans a day, only in America. Chris Tucker says, we can stop there and finish by observing that nothing in this book contradicts what we've learned over these two years, namely that Mike Pence served as both a carrier pigeon and protecting veil for the national security state that took over the country in March 2020. It was he who gave the okay to Deborah Birx's subversions. It was he who assisted in convincing Donald Trump of the lockdowns. It was he who pushed the panic that led to massive spending over purchases of masks and ventilators. It was he who pushed for the deployment of the Defense Production Act And it was he who sent the Navy hospital ship to New York that went unused. And he not only defends all of his actions, but implies that they were all blessed by God. And now, he encourages us all to stand back in awe and quite possibly elect him as the next president. As Mike Pence might say, only in America. That's Jeffrey A. Tucker over at brownstone.org, article article entitled The World According to Mike Pence. One of the questions I asked at the start of the show today is uh, how much blood is on Mike Pence's hands? I think a lot. Uh, Brother Tucker didn't even have a chance to get to what the lockdowns and the masks and the closures did to young people in our country. Teenagers no longer allowed to see their friends and committing suicide. Two, three, four-year-olds no longer allowed to see people's faces and learn how to speak and, 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 and use words. And the vaccines. As I say every day, there's more evidence coming out all the time about the harmful effects of the vaccines, but not, not in the cozy world Not in the bubble of Mike Pence. You know, a lot of these people live in a bubble. Just the other day, Ainsley Earhart was on one of those shows around lunchtime on Fox. Outnumbered, I guess. And Mike Pence was the guest, and she's like, you know, people just love you. Whether Republicans or Democrats. I mean, they might disagree with your politics, but everybody just loves you. You're just wonderful. He's sitting there laughing, trying not to be audible, but Angela Earhart's in a bubble. People can't stand Mike Pence. She's in a bubble. So the other question was, how much blood is on the hands of Twitter? And we go to the Wall Street Journal opinion page. Justin Hart, who I interviewed on the Doc Washburn show not too long ago, founder of Rational Ground, and author of Gone Viral, How COVID Drove the World Insane. His op-ed, a Wall Street journalist called, The Twitter Blacklisting of Jay Bhattacharya. And here's what he says. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford University, was a latecomer to Twitter, joining in the summer of 2021. In his first tweet, he linked to a recent article he had written that discussed age-based mortality risks and natural immunity, among other topics. His main message was powerful and contrary to COVID policies enacted across the country. He wrote, Mass testing is an insidious form of lockdown by stealth. Many Americans especially parents of school-aged children, would agree. But it's possible that many on Twitter didn't even see the message. Screenshots from an internal Twitter content moderation system showed that his account was tagged with a label of Trends Blacklist, which ensured that his tweets would never make it to the algorithmic trending topics on Twitter's front page. How many people endured weeks-long quarantine because Dr. Bhattacharya's message was suppressed. How many students would have been spared the education death knell of remote learning had schools heeded Dr. Bhattacharya's advice or even known about it? Unlike Dr. Bhattacharya, I'm not a medical expert. Normally, I wouldn't insert myself into someone else's domain but the nation's health authorities had no problem inserting themselves into mine. They meddled in my business, my church, my kids' education, my health, my grocery store, my gym, my coffee shop, my barber. In each case, some government entity was there with strangling regulations or an order to shut down entirely. So I formed a ragtag group of activists, analysts, experts, and parents, all trying to get our lives back to normal. We called our group Rational Ground and worked to amplify common-sense COVID policies. We published interactive charts, highlighted data refuting the stay-at-home orders, and pointed out the low risk of the virus for children. It was a lonely and difficult fight, but Dr. Bhattacharya was a calm and steady ally. By the fall of 2020, we focused our efforts to support Scott Atlas, a Stanford colleague of Dr. Bhattacharya, and a key advisor to the Trump administration on COVID. After President Trump lost the election, well, you know, after it was stolen from him. Sorry, I had to throw that in. The momentum Dr. Atlas had won was seemingly lost. The Biden administration pushed for restrictions and for censorship of those who disagreed with the government's official position. In July 2021, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki announced, we've increased disinformation research and tracking within the Surgeon General's office. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation. Ms. Psaki also revealed that senior staff for President Biden were a part of the White House's efforts to suppress free speech. This week's revelations about Twitter add to the evidence that something bad was afoot. Dr. Bhattacharya expressed shock on learning his account had been targeted for censorship. He tweeted out, The thought that will keep me up tonight, censorship of scientific discussion, permitted policies like school closures, and a generation of children were hurt. Remembering the adage that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Elon Musk, whose takeover of Twitter led to this and a series of other revelations, replied to Dr. Bhattacharya, the sun is coming. Wow. That's great Justin Hart over at Wall Street Journal, opinion page, article entitled, The Twitter Blacklisting of Jay Bhattacharya. So, How much blood is on Mike Pence's hands? How much blood is on Twitter's hands? I'm afraid an awful lot. I mean, that's certainly what it looks like, isn't it? Okay, it's about about that time, I guess. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Don Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, big old car dealership in the middle of the USA the believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice, the way you want to, online. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. Today's tweet of the day from Tom Fitton, head of Judicial Watch. He said, hey, everyone. Elon Musk Twitter files released tonight includes... Evidence of criminal activity by the FBI. It certainly does. It certainly does. I think it was Kurt Schlichter who said, there's no excuse for allowing the FBI to continue operating. They need to be dismantled. Dismantled. They certainly do. All right. That having been said, you've been listening to episode 297 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, The Views and Opinions. Expressed on the Doc Washburn show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This is bound and terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all new Doc Washburn show, simply peel the roof of a Rolls Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, seventh floor of the Ephemeral Be Smooth Building. Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier the tenth. And that's the way it is. Thursday, December eighth, twenty twenty-two.